One of my dad's favorite things to do with his sons is to go fishing. And every couple of years, I'll have the opportunity with my dad uh, to go fishing in Canada, where on a good day, it'll feel like you're catching a fish every single cast. Go to central Ontario, where it feels like there's no one for 100 square miles, and, and we'll catch some walleyes. Well, I want to tell you a story about my first time in Canada when I was 10 years old. I was fishing, and we stayed at this resort called the Lost Island Lodge. We had to boat in for an hour from the landing all the way to this resort on this isolated little island that had some rustic cabins and a lodge, and that's where we stayed, and that was our outpost when we would go fishing during the week. Now, one of the nights we got back to the lodge, and my brother and I really wanted to keep fishing, but my dad had to make dinner, and he just let us cast from shore from the island. So you have to understand this island on the backside had this kind of shallow, shallow gradual entry into the, into the water. And that's where we started fishing. But we weren't catching anything, so we decided to meander, I mean, this island was tiny, to the front side of the island. But the entry into the water was not gradual. It was basically this little rounded off ledge and then underneath the water, which was a couple feet below the ledge, it dropped off almost immediately to 100 feet of water depth. Now, I don't know if I should admit this, but I'm not necessarily the most coordinated person. I can trip on just about anything, which is why every time Hannah and I go hiking, she is always carrying Matthias. I'm the one that's going to trip and fall, so she, she carries Matthias. You can see right where this is going. As I'm casting my fishing pole as far as my 10-year-old biceps can reach, which is about three feet in front of me, I take one step too far over that ledge and I go crashing into the water. Ice cold, fully clothed, I've got a fishing pole in my hand, and there is nothing between me and 100 feet except all of that icy cold water. But I left out a key detail of the story. Before we started casting our fishing poles, I asked my dad for permission. And he said, sure, you can do that, but you have to wear a life jacket. And in my 10-year-old logic, I was arguing with my dad and saying, no, dad, I can swim. No, it's not that big of a deal. No, we're going to be safe. No, that's inconvenient. And my dad wouldn't budge, and he made me put on a life jacket. You can imagine my perspective changed just a little bit after I'd fallen into the water because it wasn't that big of a deal. I had a life jacket, nothing was going to happen, and my brother pulled me out, and everything was fine. But if I hadn't been wearing a life jacket, that story could have ended a lot differently. Couldn't it have? My perspective changed. And I wonder how often our Christian life is a little bit like, like that life jacket. Following Jesus, maybe it feels a little overbearing. Maybe some of the rules that God has established for us feel a little bit outdated. Maybe some of the expectations that God has placed in our life feel a little overbearing. They feel a little uncomfortable. They feel a little inconvenient. But is there a chance that we need a perspective change? Is there a chance tonight that we need to remember what God has saved us from, who he has declared us to be in Christ, and who he's calling us to be? And that's what... Our text is going to talk about tonight in Colossians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there with me. 
We're going to be in verses 21 to 23 as we think about what it means to have this renewed perspective in our relationship with Christ. So follow along with me as I read Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." Why don't we start just with that first verse? Look at verse 21. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind. It's an interesting phrase. Paul just called us hostile aliens. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi thriller. That word alien has an interesting connotation in Scripture. I even remember as a kid uh, sitting in Sunday school as like an eight-year-old, and for some reason we were going through like the book of Leviticus, not sure why, and I was thumbing through the pages of the law, and I came across this verse. I don't even remember where it was. And it said, remember the aliens among you. Now, if you're eight years old and you read that verse, what are you going to think? The Bible proves aliens exist. So I raise my hand as fast as I possibly can, and I tell the teacher, teacher, the Bible proves that aliens exist. And the teacher very astutely quickly corrected me and said, no, that's just a synonym of of foreigner. And I was very grateful, but also disappointed all at the same time. It was also clear that I needed a new translation of the Bible. But the word alien, it has kind of a strong connotation, doesn't it? I mean, if someone uses the word um, illegal alien to talk about an undocumented person, that's a derogatory term. It communicates this idea of being unwanted, of being unwelcomed. That's That's what Paul calls us, an alien. Someone who's unwanted, who's unwelcomed. This picture of us being on one side of the Grand Canyon, God being on the other, and there's absolutely no way to bridge the gap, no way for us to have that right relationship with God. We're separated from God by our position. But then he continues and says we're hostile in mind, that there's not, there was nothing in our mind that was sensitive, was sympathetic to the things of God. And then it gets worse, that we were doing evil deeds. Not only are we separated from God, not only is our posture against God, but our behavior indicated that we are against God, doing evil deeds. That's quite the trifecta, isn't it? And last week we talked about a Christological heresy called Arianism. And this passage actually kind of combats another heresy called Pelagianism. What's up with heretics and their weird names? Arius, Pelagius, I have no idea. But Pelagius taught something that is totally contrary to this text. He taught that God could never command people to do something that was impossible for them to fulfill. And he believed that God then commanded people to be perfect, so then it was possible for people to be perfect. So he taught that people were, when they were born, their nature wasn't affected by sin so that people could actually live a perfect life. And his expectation for Christ's followers was that they were perfect. Just like any good heresy, it comes back around, it gets repackaged. And Pelagianism is still very well, alive and well in our world today. And it kind of comes out every time that we might hear someone say, you know, 
I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. Or, you know, society as a whole, people are, are relatively good. Comes out when someone might say, you know, I'm going to heaven because of the good things that I've done. But compare that to what Paul says in this passage, that before Jesus came and invaded our lives, we were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There was nothing on our own that we did to earn right status before God. And maybe those three words describe your life before Christ came. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Maybe some of us, some of you have what I would call a wild testimony. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe we come to Christ later in life. Maybe there's a, a long list of, of things that you did, and then there's this, this radical transformation of Jesus coming into your life, and, and things changed. Maybe that narrative doesn't fit others of our lives. Maybe some of us who grew up in a Christian home or in a Christian environment, maybe we came to Christ at a young age and we don't have a memory of that radical transformation or uh, that, that big life-changing moment. Maybe some of us are somewhere in between. Well, here's a word of caution for person one who has the wild testimony. Please be careful to never wear your testimony as a badge of honor. We don't want to brag about our sin. We don't want to be prideful and boast about the things that we did before Jesus came into our life. We want to acknowledge them and talk about them without bragging about them. Jesus always needs to be the main character of our story, not ourselves. It's his story, not ours. But here's maybe a word of advice for those of us that might maybe have grown up in a Christian environment. Let's not be jealous of person one who has the exciting testimony. It's not ultimately our story, it's God's story. And each of us who have that relationship with Christ have a testimony, have a story of work that God's done in our lives. And if we don't have that, that memory maybe of, of what things were like before Jesus came, maybe there, there wasn't a long list of bad things that we did, we don't have a recollection of that crazy life transformation, maybe think of it this way. Think of how bad we could have been. Think of the logical progression of our sin 5, 10, 20 years down the road if God hadn't invaded our life. It's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? We think of it that way, we can be very thankful for Jesus saving us. Each one of us has a story. Not suggesting that we should dwell on the past, but we definitely shouldn't forget about it either. And that's right where Paul starts this passage. He says, you were once alienated from God. And that's what I want us to remember for our first principle tonight. Remember who you were. Remember who you were. None of us are born Christians. That's impossible. We're born natural enemies of God. And at some point, we have to cross the line from, from death to life. At some point, we need to place our faith in Christ. All of us have a time, if we have a relationship with Christ, before we were Christians. And it's, to some extent, it's important for us to remember who we were before Jesus invaded our lives. So I think it's easy for us as Christians sometimes to be fake, to pretend like we're perfect. I always wondered why. <laughs> because when I look at somebody else's life and I see them pretending to be perfect, I can see right through it. 
But then why do I turn around to do the same thing? Because sometimes we don't want people to see our flaws. We don't want people to see our mistakes. We want to pretend like we have our act together. But none of us do. We just agree to stop pretending like we're perfect. But one of the best ways for us to combat that temptation in our life is to share our story. It's to remember who we were before Christ invaded our life. And we're going to have a chance, even in our small groups tonight, maybe for our leaders or for one or two people in the group, to even share our story. You can see that on the first question on the back of our handout. Let's not drag those on too long. Maybe just a couple minute highlight as we share those. But that's an opportunity for us to encourage one another and to be encouraged as we remember what God has done in our life. Maybe for all of us, this might be a scary prayer to pray. But what would it look like to ask God Give me one person that I can share my story with this week. Give me one person that I can share my testimony with this week. That'd be cool if all of us here tonight have an opportunity this week to share our story with somebody. Maybe that's a prayer that we could pray this week. But each of us have to remember that in our flesh, in our humanness, there is nothing that we've done to earn God's favor, to earn that relationship with God. He initiated and completed the process of reconciliation. And we see that very clearly at the beginning of verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The verb reconciled there is, is passive helping us understand that we are passive in the process of reconciliation. It's Jesus that does 100% of the work. When we think of reconciliation in a human relationship, of that compromise of restoring something that was broken, it's always a two-way street, isn't it? There's always some compromise, some give and take, but that's not at all how it works with reconciliation, our relationship with Christ. He did 100% of the work, offering friendship and peace All that we need to do is respond to his free offer of salvation with repentance and faith. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. Begins by saying, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. In our flesh, on our own, there was nothing that we could do to bring ourselves back to life But then as Paul continues in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Christ has done the work of reconciliation, and we simply respond to that work with repentance and faith. That is the beauty of the message of the gospel. When it comes to our salvation, the only thing that you and I bring to the table is the sin that made it necessary. None of us are good enough to earn God's favor. We all need Jesus. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus lived the life that you needed to live and died in our place, shedding his blood for us so that when God looks at us, He sees us through the perspective, through the lens of Jesus' shed blood on the cross. And if you're here tonight and you don't have that relationship with Christ, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, that's the most important decision that any of us could make. Crossing over the line from death to life. And that's a perspective all of us need. 
that when we have a relationship with Christ, we cannot forget about our conversion. We cannot forget about our salvation. That's our second principle. Be grateful for who you are. Be grateful for who you are. Honestly, this principle is incomplete. But to explain why it's incomplete, I am going to pick on a worship song that I don't really like that much. And this is my opinion. Now it's correct, but you're welcome to have your own opinion. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Maybe you've sung the song Good, Good Father before on a, on a Sunday morning at your church. It's a pretty trendy song, a popular song. And it, the reason that I'm not, not always a big fan is because it can be a little bit confusing. And the chorus says this, I'm loved by you, it's who I am. Think about what we just read in this text. Who are we before Jesus invaded our life? We're alienated, we're hostile in mind, we're doing evil deeds. There's nothing in ourselves that has earned a right status before God. So I think that line in that song is incomplete. I'm loved by you, it's who I am in Christ. And when you sing that song, I bet that's what you mean. And when I sing it, that's what I mean. But I think sometimes we need to think theologically about some of the lyrics, some of the things that we sing in our worship. But I can't pick on Good Good Father because I did the same thing with that principle, didn't I? I left it incomplete. So why don't you take your pen and in a big parenthesis, right, in Christ after that second principle? Because we need to remember and be grateful for who we are, not in ourselves, not by what we've done, but when we have that relationship with Christ, who God has declared us to be. He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter, his child, his heir. He's given us value and meaning and hope, not by anything that we've done, but entirely through the cross. It's amazing. The gospel teaches us as one pastor puts it, that we're more sinful and wicked than we ever dared imagine, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever could have hoped. What a tremendous dichotomy that Jesus died for us even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were enemies of God, offering us eternal life. So when we express our gratitude for what Christ has done for us, we get to take zero credit. Jesus took the exam. He got 100%, transferred the score to our account. We can take none of the credit. When we think of the goodness of the gospel and everything that God has given us in Christ, then we have to be thankful. We have to be grateful. But I will admit, it is so easy to take salvation for granted. It's easy to walk through life each day and maybe not thank God for his saving grace in our lives. To not go out of our way to express gratitude for what he's done. And I think that underscores maybe a deeper problem in our heart. It's actually a problem that's rampant in the millennial and Gen Z generation. It's called entitlement. You ever had a boomer complain that you're entitled before? Boomers, you can plug your ears for just a second. What are some words that people have used to describe millennials? Lazy, entitled, 
One I read online this week was snowflake, and I found that offensive as a millennial. Snowflake, we can do better than that, right? But it actually comes with, and I know that we don't have any entitled millennials here tonight, so we can make fun of all the millennials that don't come to young adults. But the statistics, I mean, here's what they say. 40% of millennials believe that they should be promoted every two years regardless of performance. Not sure about that. In 2013, um, more 18 to 29-year-olds lived with their parents than with a spouse. And then when millennials are accused of, of being entitled, then they just blame their soccer coaches for giving them participation trophies when they couldn't tell the difference between a football and a soccer ball, right? Now, I'm convinced, regardless of our generation, that every single one of us has an entitlement problem. And before our baby boomers throw a flag on the play, I am not talking about our work ethic. All of us have a spiritual entitlement problem. Because when we forget who we were before Jesus invaded our life, when we forget the goodness of the gospel, we start to become entitled. And it sounds just a little bit like this. God, after all that I've done for you, this is what I get? Or it sounds like this. You know, I've been a pretty good Christian lately, so I can cheat just a little bit in this area. Or, you know, I've been a faithful Christian for decades, so it's time that God starts pouring some blessings on my life. The heart of entitlement comes out every time we do that thing called grumbling. And it has to be easier to grumble right now than any time in the history of my life. I mean, think of all the things we could grumble about. Wow, I just love wearing masks. It's great. I just love living in the middle of a global pandemic. It's been the best year of my life. I can't believe the brotherly love that was demonstrated when I watched that debate last week. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. There are so many things we can grumble about. There are so many things we can complain about, right? But I think when we do... When I do, it underscores a deeper heart problem of entitlement, of believing that I deserve something from God, believing that I'm somehow a good enough person, that God owes me something. So maybe when we feel the temptation to complain, to grumble this week, we can tap the brakes and try to find a way to, to twist that that comment to something positive, to be grateful, to express gratitude for something. Maybe it means going out of our way in our times in prayer this week to thank God for saving us, to, to remember what he saved us from and who he's called us to be, to express gratitude even to others around us for what God has done in our life. And we're going to have some time even in our small groups tonight to dialogue about how we might transform our grumbling into gratitude. But as Paul continues in the passage, he doesn't end with our conversion, right? He starts with who we were, talks about who we are, but then he continues by painting a picture of who God has called us to be. He's creating us and transforming us to be. Allow me to keep reading the second half of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
It's quite the picture, isn't it? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. That who, that's who God is transforming and creating us to be. And there's two aspects. There's an earthly aspect and there's an eternal aspect. Let's talk about the earthly aspect for just a moment. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation, and the old has passed away and the new has come. Because when we turn away from our sin and we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes in and takes up residence in our heart, begins doing that work of transformation only He can do, making us look more like Christ. And I know sanctification, yes, it, it sometimes looks like two steps forward or three steps forward and one step back, but the goal is that over time, we're growing to look more and more like Jesus. It goes back to what we talked about just a couple weeks ago in our gospel equation. Remember that fourth bubble is a changed life for good works. Not that we're working for our salvation, but good works come as a response to our salvation. And God in his word has laid out kind of his family rules, his plans for our life, walking in obedience. And that's ultimately what Paul calls us to in verse 22. Holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. That's exactly who God is creating us and transforming us to be. But as we look at God's word and we look at the rules that he has laid forth and asked us to, to follow, if we just look at the rule, sometimes it can feel a little bit overbearing, can't it? And think about how the world might view God's sexual ethic. That, you know, sex is reserved for a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman for life. Ah, that seems a little stifling. Or, I mean, think of how our world might view something like pornography. God says that it's against his will. How often do we think that God's laws, his rules, might feel a little bit stifling? He's not letting us have the fun that we want to have. When we have those feelings, we're failing to have the right perspective. And to illustrate that, maybe think of it this way, a fictitious illustration. It's a young man who grows up in a broken home, really wants a solid college education, but didn't quite get the ACT score, the GPA to, to get scholarship money, and doesn't want to go into debt, so he's not left with very many options. But he's a hard worker. There's a man from his church who believes in this young man and wants to invest in his future. So he comes up to him one Sunday morning and says, young man, I'm going to make an investment in your future. I'm going to give you a full ride to the Harvard of the Midwest, Cedarville University. <laughs> I might be a little biased, but it's my illustration. So this young man goes to Cedarville at all expenses paid. But when he gets there, there's a couple things that catch him off guard. He doesn't like all the rules. He can't wear shorts to class. Bummer. Can't have any alcohol while he's a student. And he can't stay out past the 1 a.m. curfew. Unless his RA was Andrew, and then Andrew would have broken curfew with him, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Again, this is my illustration. Now, from an outside perspective, those rules might feel overbearing. But think of the perspective of that young man. He's just grateful to be there. So if that's the rules of being part of the family, of finishing his education, then he's gratefully going to abide by the family rules. 
Think of what that means for us as a Christ follower. Think of all of the things that God has done for us, bringing us back to life, giving us hope, giving us future, giving us an eternity with him in heaven. When we think of all of the grace and the love that God has shown us, following his household rules doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. We have to make sure we understand the Christian life in the right perspective, that our obedience is even grounded in what God has done for us. Our obedience is grounded in gratitude. But at the same time, we have to remember that the policies, the household rules that God has given to us, they're not just because they're the right thing to do. Oftentimes, God's rules are the best thing to do. I mean, think of my life jacket illustration. I thought the life jacket was overbearing and annoying and frustrating. But it potentially saved my life. And when my, God made, when, when my dad made that rule, he had my best interests in mind. And yes, God is ultimately concerned about his glory, but he's also concerned about our flourishing and our good. And so many of the rules that God has set forth in his word are actually for our best. We just have to trust him and obey his household rules. So is there a chance that maybe there's somebody here tonight who's spiritually been walking through some rebellious teenage years? It's kind of waved their finger at God and said, yep, not going to listen to that rule. Yep, I don't really care what you say. Yeah, I'm not going to listen to what your word says in this, this area. Without being trite, without being offensive, maybe it's time to grow up. Maybe it's time to grow in our spiritual maturity, step out of the te- rebellious teenage years and to walk into spiritual adulthood. How are we doing walking in obedience? Are there any of God's rules that we've just written off? Said, yeah, that one doesn't apply to me. It applies to everybody else, but it doesn't apply to me. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not suggesting that Christians are going to be perfect. (laughs) We're not. You're not. I'm not. Not even close. When we become a Christian, we're not going to be sinless, but over time we're going to sin less. But the struggle that you and I experience is we're living in this already not yet tension where we have the Holy Spirit and we have the new life that Christ has given to us, but at the same time we still struggle and fight against our flesh. And we have an enemy who who is fighting and, and doesn't want us to follow the Lord. He's trying to get us to give in to sin. And we're battling between the spirit and the flesh. We're in this already not yet tension. And for us, being holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ ultimately is going to happen in eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. And maybe there's days where you've, or I have prayed something like this. Lord, I can't believe I'm asking for forgiveness for the same sin for the hundredth time. Or God, just take away this desire. I know this isn't in your will, but this feeling just keeps coming back. Will you just please take it away? God, I know you don't want me to give in to this temptation, but the desire is just so strong. Friends, we need to remember the day when all of those thoughts and those prayers won't even be a faint memory anymore. When we're going to be with Christ. When the sinful mistakes of our past will be gone. When the temptations that we might struggle with today will be gone and we'll be made whole, be holy 
blameless and above reproach. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Because life here and now in this battle is not easy. But following Jesus is worth it. And I hope that each one of us can remember who we were before Jesus invaded our life. The grace that God has given us, who he's declared us to be. And then finally, number three, we need to anticipate who you will be. Anticipate who you will be. Holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. That's the right perspective. It's the right perspective that's going to get us through this unique season of our life as we keep living for Jesus. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus and living for him. Let me pray. Father, it's good to be here tonight. We don't take for granted the opportunity to gather, to spend some time in your word, to spend some time in small groups. And as we take some time to look through these questions, may you guide our discussions. May you be in and through this time. We're thankful for your kindness. And may we be faithful to remember what you've done in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.